0: Oh, hi. Thank you. Thanks, Janet, for the opening and your prayer. Um, and I want to add my welcome to Janet. My name is Melissa Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, and um, thank you. I'm really happy to be here tonight. And um, so, you know, I was thinking today about um, the topic that I wanted to talk about. And um, for me, usually, what um, you know, like we we follow the book. So we try to go chapter by chapter, but there's always this time where we kind of come in between steps and we're kind of figuring out what's going to come next and who's going to take the turn doing what. And you know, John and I like to kind of work it out a little bit. Um, and then I sort of start thinking about what's happening in my life. And so what would be something that I need <laughs> to revisit? Like what's, it's not just a topic that I want to like you know, share, you know, educate and share other people with what I know, but it's, it's also quite useful for me. So I start reflecting on what's happening in my world, what's going on with me and what is a topic that I could probably best re-examine some more. So this really is one of my favorite topics of all. I love, first of all, I'm, my, my, My history is I did not come into Overeaters Anonymous looking to get a new code. Like that was not my plan in place. I came, um, you know, probably for the reason many people come. I thought my code was just fine, thank you very much. Like I would have told you I've got really good morals. I know what's wrong. I know what's wrong with the whole world. (laughs) I know it needs to be fixed. And everybody ought to be a lot more tolerant in this world, don't you know? That was my view. Um, and um, and now he was coming here just to figure out this food problem. Like, why can't I stop eating? And and really, why can't why can't I eat whatever I want and not be fat? Like that really was what first brought me here. I just was hoping that the code that I was going to get was going to be you helped me figure out how I could eat what I want to eat without gaining weight. And then it shifted to, okay, so I want you to give me the ability to not eat. That's what I was hoping. Like you would remove um, this, the way that like I thought you guys could give me some moderation. That's the code I was looking for. And then, you know, crushed by this disease over and over and over again, I came to realize It was not my weight, weight was not my problem. Funny enough, I was over 300 pounds, but weight was not my problem. Uh, Food was not my problem either. Could not stop eating, but nope, food was not my problem. I found out really my problem was that I did not have a code to live by. I thought I did, but I didn't. And so this is really one of my favorite topics. It is really near and dear to my heart Um, because for me, it's been, it's, it's been a change. It's been a profound shift in who I am and how I live my life. And, um, you know, I also really want to make it clear that I've got lots of ideas, right? And, and lots of opinions and tons of ideas. Um, but I want this talk to not just be Melissa's idea of love and tolerance, right? That that would be um, just more of me. I, I've actually, the book, um, this big book has a lot to say about love and tolerance. It helps me define what love is and it helps me understand just what does tolerance mean and just what do I have to be tolerant of? And it really goes through it. And that's what I'm hoping to do, to really highlight what love actually means in the big book and in our lives. And what does the book tell us we're going to have to tolerate, right? Um, And what does tolerance actually mean after all? Because my definition wasn't so clear on that either. Um, You know, and so before I get started and start picking out from the big book, what sections to look at. I I need to always acknowledge something that um, sometimes, especially if you're a newcomer, um, there's something very different for us um, about the way that we have to live versus the way that other people have to live. And that is an important beginning if you're new um, or if you're renewing. Right. If you're here and maybe you've been here years and years and years, but you're starting to feel like a newcomer, Um, you know, the way that I have to live is very different from the way that other people have to live. Um, So if ever for a moment I start drifting into this land of this isn't fair, why do I have to do? X, Y, and Z, or why do I have to be tolerant of that? Um, I need only remind myself that I'm the addict, that I'm the one here who was eating myself to death, who was crushed by this. And I came to this conclusion this step one. You know, a lot of times people think step one just means put the food down. They get this idea, oh, step one means put the food down. Mm -hmm. And actually step one means I can't put the food down. I can't do it. I have no power to do it. And I make this crucial diagnosis in that powerlessness that I am different from other people because other people can simply put the food down. Other people can simply do what they're told to do right? If it makes sense. And, but I'm different. I'm a distinct entity. That's what step one means for me. And it says it right in the doctor's opinion. It says that we are set apart as a distinct entity. And what I found very helpful is that, you know, when I'm going through that idea of step one, I fold a piece of paper in half because I want us to be really clear who who we are, who I am and what my life needs to look like. Um, on one half of the paper are all of the people who can eat what they want or not eat when they don't want to, right? They can eat when they like, or they can choose not to eat when they don't want to. They can eat in normal portions or they can even choose to overeat sometimes and then get right back on the wagon like nothing ever happened. Those are the people who can also get ease and comfort from normal amounts of food, but they can also get ease and comfort from overeating. Those are the people who can, you know, overeat sometimes, who can have a bad breakup and go out and buy a pint of beer and Jerry's and Overeat that pine and Ben and Jerry's. And they might even say that they're emotional eaters. Normal people could be emotional eaters too. But when they decide to stop, they can stop, right? And when they reach the point of being stuck and sick to their stomachs, they don't continue to eat. They're done. Those are those people. Guess what? Those people, they can also tell great big lies or even small little lies and seem to get away with it, right? Um, They don't have to take inventories. They don't have to make amends. They can get mad. They can hold grudges and they don't have to develop tolerance and love for the things that disturb them, not necessary for them. Um, And, you know, and I, I have lots of those people in my life. They can get like, a great big hit off of being pissed off at people and talked about it an awful lot. And they seem to be okay nonetheless, right? And then there's me. I live on the side of the page, you know, um, and it says in the book that we know we're not like other men, right? We know that we're not like other men. And so because I'm not like other people, I don't really have to worry so much what seems right for others, I just know that my step one understanding tells me that this is the way that I have to live, right? And I remember when I first started hearing that this, I was going to have to accept many things that I found upsetting. That was like one of the things that my sponsor told me in the beginning, you know, you're gonna have to start accepting Lots of situations and lots of things that you don't like. And, um, you know, early on in recovery, I learned that my serenity and happiness were going to be directly almost reliant on how easily I came to accept things that I found upsetting. That my serenity actually grew, increased as I practiced acceptance right And that if I were pointing out all the things that were wrong, my serenity was going to decrease dramatically. And you know um I was directed to that well-known page of the big book and um, and at that point I hadn't even been interested in the big book then, but I was pointed out, my sponsor was very fond every time I would get upset, she would say, Melissa, page 417. Page 417, turn to page 417. And it depends on what, you know, what, you know, what, um, which one you're reading, which edition you're reading. But for me, it was page 417, and it says, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, or thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. You know, I understand this in theory. Like it sounds really good when someone reads that. I'm like, oh yeah, I have to accept everything in this moment right here and now. But somehow actually experiencing this internally Like reading it is one thing, but actually feeling it internally, it was not very simple, that was hard. And accepting things that upset me is one thing on paper, but to really do this, how? How do you actually accept things that feel unacceptable, right? Um, And and I wasn't sure, does that mean I'm gonna be in denial? Like pretend, close my eyes, like I don't see the things that are wrong, um, you know, because all the rest of the world seems to thrive and feed on taking sides and and positions, like having a position and taking a side. And I used to live there too. In fact, I felt like connected to people when I was taking a position, when I had a side to be on, because then I could say they're on my side, right? And I felt somehow safe and calm and protected, but at what cost? At the cost of all the people who are not on my side, right? There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of like self-righteous superiority, indignation, feeling above. And that is a blockage to God. That is an obstacle for having a relationship with God because God does not draw sides. You know, that's my understanding that we are all his children, right? That we are all God's children and God wants me to love his children, you know? um, And I would look around and see that there's lots of people who are, it feels like the world is very polarized at times. Everybody will tell you who their candidate is, what their party is, how they feel, what position they take on everything from you know from from everything from from medical you know from vaccinations to not vaccinations to politicians to no politicians to food plans to what OA program you're working you know we do it this way oh they do it that way right everybody seems to delight in that and People choose sides and argue their points. They choose what newspapers to buy, what channels to watch. But for someone like me, I have to be comfortable with people on both sides as much as possible. I need to find myself unattached to a position, unattached to an outcome. And with that in mind, I'm gonna really define tolerance because I thought tolerance used to mean I had to stomach the things I didn't like. I had to somehow ugh, have tolerance for all those things. But here's what it says Tolerance is Number one, the ability or willingness to tolerate something in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. Or two, the capacity to endure continued subjection to something. And they usually refer to it to a drug or an outside sort of um, source, something outside, you know, and they might talk about um, tolerance to a particular medication, tolerance maybe even to a transplant. So you would get like a like an organ transplant, and they have their body has to learn tolerance to that transplant, to any environmental conditions without having an adverse reaction. So I like that one. I like to think about that, that I have to have the ability to endure continued exposure to things outside of me without me having an adverse reaction, without me getting self-righteous, without me getting resentful, without me getting heated, worked up, right? So now let's jump in with that definition in mind and get started. And, And I always love lists. I'm like a big list person. And there's a list. I found a list of what the big book tells us that we're going to need to tolerate. What are the things that I'm going to have to build up you know, my my tolerance for? And I like to think about it like this in simple terms. What are the things that I need to ask to have diminished sensitivity to? What are the things that I might need to have a little thicker skin, right? So that I don't feel the pain of everything that's not my leg. Well, number one, the big book tells me that I have to be tolerant of views that are different. Says that in There's a Solution, page 19 through 20. It says of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument, we shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So, you know, um, I think about it like this. It's not tolerance of other people's views if there are views that don't bother me. If it doesn't bother me, I don't need to worry about tolerating it. I like it, right? It works just great for me. But what about when somebody's view is not the same as yours? Or it almost seems directly like against you you feel like it's directly against you. Well, we're told we stay out of controversy, right? Part of being tolerant, if I want to diminish my sensitivity, if I wanna actually make my skin a little thicker, I actually have to avoid getting in the middle of controversy. I stay away from Yep, from medical debates. I stay away from psychiatric opinions. I stay away from political discussions with people who have different views. It's my job. I have to stay away from people, from having, not from those people, but from getting in there with those people. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't have opinions. And it doesn't mean that I don't have principles or my ideals. I can. But these are the ideals that I ask God to help mold. And I can live in agreement with my ideals. In fact, I must. So it doesn't mean if somebody, and I had it happen this week, I had a colleague say something that I actually didn't like and I didn't agree with. And it was sort of of a political nature. We found ourselves in this political kind of conversation or really it wasn't even a conversation, it was her opinion. And, um, and I have learned it's okay to walk away. It does not mean that I'm agreeing, nor did I walk away in a huff. I did not walk away in a huff. I just, mm, that's interesting kind of a thing. And I asked her actually, so I wonder what do you think the solution is to that situation? But really just that's what I asked her. What do you think the solution might be to that situation? And she didn't have one. She really just wanted to continue to tell me her opinion, which was not the same as mine. And I lovingly, I put the rope down because there's no point in getting in in a debate with somebody. I've never yet, I'm not a debater, that's not my job. And I've never yet seen anybody get convinced in the workplace when you have a heated political debate never never i i've never seen anybody say wow i you know what i never saw it from that side thank you so much for enlightening me never never so there's no point in going there because it won't it won't increase my tolerance and i need very much to pray for this person and to see her with love not to get into a controversy Right? And why? Because I won't be useful to her. I can't be useful to her if she hates my guts. And I can't be useful to her if I hate her guts back, right? No good for me, no good for her. Um, and that my life depends on my constant thought of others and how I'm gonna help meet their needs. Well, I can't meet anybody's needs if they hate me and I hate them, right? No needs are going to be met there. So part of being tolerant is, yep, we stay out of controversy. And as a you know, recovered woman, controversy is not my platform. It's not my thing. I have to stay off hot topics, and it's not easy when family members or or coworkers have views that disturb me. But I don't argue them, right? Um, I'm not there to be argumentative or opinionated because my very life depends on my ability to find love in my art rather than win the argument. I don't need to win the argument. I need to love the person that I wanna argue with. That's what I need to do. Um, I don't argue about philosophical educational philosophies and I've got a lot of opinions there. I don't get into it with my boss, right? And it doesn't mean, by the way, if you don't argue with people, I used to think it meant that I was weak or stupid or that no, they would God. think that I was weak or stupid. I was afraid, not that I was weak or stupid, but that they would think I was weak or stupid. And now I'm not really worried about their opinion of me. That's not, that's not my God, right? And um, And if somebody does think I'm weak or stupid, it's okay. I'm a big girl. Right? I I I I might not like being disliked, but I can tolerate the discomfort I feel when I believe that I'm not being liked, right? I can have diminished sensitivity to the possibility that somebody's not liking me in the moment. All right, number 2. Tolerant of varying religious views. And tolerant of my own inadequate conceptions of God. So even where I can be tolerant of other people's perceptions and their concepts, their religious leanings, but I also have to be tolerant of my own learning, of my own inconsistencies, right? My inadequate, when I say inadequate conceptions of God, it means that I'm still forever forming and growing. Every time I have a new problem, my God's gotta grow bigger. So I have to have tolerance for where I might not have everything I need in my belief, but I'm tolerant and willing to grow. And in We Agnostics, it says, page 49 to 50, that we used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritually minded persons of all race, colors and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes use their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. We never gave the spiritual side of their hearing. And the appendix in the spiritual experience says, that most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. So I need to be tolerant of other religious perspectives. I should not look with an eagle eye to find the hypocrisy in some religious people. Because by the way, religious people don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy. Everybody's got some hypocrisy, right? It's not reserved for just religious people. And that would be very intolerant of me and unfair, right? And prejudiced to have an eagle eye solely aimed at people who are religious, right? Um, So for me, family members are a great place to start. I see them as being intolerant and prejudiced, and it's my judgmentalism that judges me. And my work is to overlook this so I can see their gifts and good characteristics and see the, the wonderful gifts that they actually get from their religious practices. Intolerance is an obstacle to finding God. If I am to find God, I need to be willing to see him in all places. So I have to be open. I have to have an attitude of of intolerance, right? And and, And not to have belligerent denial. So when I say like belligerent denial, like I would be like, no way. First of all, I'm not even gonna examine it. I'm not gonna look at it. It's gonna be beneath my consideration, but I'm gonna close my eyes and say, no way, no way. right?" Um, And I can't have that. That's not gonna work. Number three, tolerant of being offended. Yep, we actually have to tolerate being offended by people. And in how it works on page 66 through 67, it says, Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they like ourselves were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done, right? So, you know, um, that particular person at work, they said something that I, you know, my overly sensitive nature could interpret it and get offended and take it as though it was a personal attack on me. And I'm actually supposed to not do that. This is telling me, no. Have compassion, have love, compassion, overlook it, overlook it. And how it works, page 70 says, if we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot, right? So I'm constantly, by the way, I'm constantly taking inventory. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality, pointless and deadly, pointless and deadly. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, right? So we're supposed to tolerate, have decreased sensitivity to even the people who seemingly are our enemies, for we look upon them as sick, People. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct, and we are willing to straighten out the past if we can. And I love, you know, Janet had taught me to reword that, you know, and reframe the sick man's prayer to the spiritually developing man's prayer. And I just love that because if I can view somebody as spiritually developing, you know, I'm a teacher. And I love the idea, I love children and I have a lot of patience for the development of children because I understand that they're growing. And the things that I would easily tolerate from a toddler, right? Because they're growing, because I don't expect them to have it mastered. They're babies, they're just learning. I need to look at people with that same loving, compassionate view that they're developing, that they're still growing, and learning, and evolving, like Janet says, under construction, right, and I love, you know, um, I think about my own, my own children, when they were toddlers, they did things, right, like silly, naughty things, right, like wrote on the wall, or even, right, when they were toddlers, they even hit you, that when they were learning, they'd like, you know, kick or yell or whatever Um and give them a loving free pass, right? We we certainly put down boundaries, right? We don't allow ourselves to be a punching bag, but we don't get so worked up self-righteousness, right? And pointing a finger at them and calling them bad because we understand that they're wrong right? And, and we expect toddlers to act a certain way. And so when someone disturbs me, One of my practices in meditation is that I envision them as a toddler, as a young child. I use my mental ability. I've got a great imagination. I used to imagine, by the way, every little thing anybody ever did to me as though they were coming for me, right? I used my imagination that way. Now I can use it differently. And I can use my imagination to picture the people who upset me just like they were babies, just like they were still growing toddlers with love and compassion in my heart. And when I view them as children and I try to picture what they must have been like as children, right? Um, and what? why are they not so nice today? What, maybe what happened to them? How could I be even more loving towards them? Um, you know, that they actually are Today, children of God. So they are children, they're God's children. And when I view people that way, my heart softens. I can actually allow my heart to soften. And this is especially effective when I find myself upset with like a really good example it was like, like my husband, if he did something that got me really upset, um, I would picture him. I have this picture of him when he was little. close the door. (laughs) I have a picture of my husband when he was little and he's wearing this like striped little like leisure suit, like, you know, early, I don't know, early 1970s. And he's missing his front teeth and he's so cute. His hair is like all little calyx and it's just adorable. And I mean, what's so cute and funny about that picture is there's a picture of his brother. His brother's a few years older than him just a few years older in the same leisure suit, like looks so cute. So when I see my husband, you know, in that I can picture him there. And for me, it helps. I think about, you know, anytime that he's ever done anything that upset me, I picture him like that little boy. And for myself, you know, my husband lost his dad when he was eight years old, seven or eight years old, his dad died. So when I think about him as that little boy without a dad, no, it's really easy not to get upset with him over the dishes in the sink. It seems so silly to get all and take it personal and be all self-righteous. You know, he's taking advantage of me. And and I can sort of practice that same thing with lots of people in the world. I don't know what their backstory is. I don't know what they lost at seven. You know, I don't know what happened to them, if anything did, but I need to treat the world that way. Um, You know, and... um. And if I can do that, you know, I have a lot more patience and love in my heart. Number four, tolerant of family members' imperfections. Well, that leads me right in there. It says, be tolerant. The book tells us to be tolerant of our family's imperfections. Into action on page 83, it says, Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fit the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us our way, show us the way of patience, tolerance, Kindliness and love. Spiritual life is not a fairy. We have to live it. And unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not urge them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone, right? So living with me would make a skeptic out of anyone. And then it says in working with others, page 98, that his family may be at fault. In many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration, argument, and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague right? And then furthermore into wives, it says this, page 118, it says, his ways in thinking and doing are the habits of years. Patience, tolerance, understanding, and love are the watch words. Showing these things in yourself and they will be reflected back to you from him. I need to lead my family. That's what it tells us. We need to lead our family and refrain from criticizing family members. If I'm cleaning house with the family, I am not urging them to find their part. I don't point out the mess on their side. I don't talk incessantly about spiritual matters, but rather I live it. My actions are what they hear, right? Right, my How I demonstrate it is what they hear. Nobody wants to hear me talk about my values if I'm not living them, right? Who cares what my values are if I'm not demonstrating it? I have to remember, you know, for me that my kids are not my sponsees. They don't need to be schooled in 10 steps. When they have a feeling, I don't need to teach them how to work this program. They're not in this program. Um, they're not the addict. And if even furthermore, if they were the addict, I'm certainly not their sponsor, right? So that's not my job there either. And I need to continually do that with myself. Um, you know, I always used to point out to my family how they're supposed to live in agreement with these spiritual concepts, which is crazy. It, it's, it's, it's like the world's worst way to convince people by telling other people how they ought to have love and forgiveness for others. Not my job to do that. My job is to demonstrate it. Five, tolerance for the still sick and suffering. We're supposed to have tolerance for one another, right? For one another in this program. Working with others on page 89 says, because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate. Never criticize. We're not supposed to criticize each other. To be helpful is our only aim, and that even means with working with our sponsees, we're really not supposed to criticize them. That's not our job. Our job is to be helpful. So obviously, you know, when we come to these rooms, we're we're pretty mangled. I was pretty mangled, and we're not so easy to like all the time. Like think I was like the easiest person to like when I came here because I was filled with self-pity. I was like miss sad all the time. Anytime you would catch me, I'd be crying tears in my eyes Um, and negative. I had so much negativity. It was like not so fun to be around me, especially in early abstinence. People in early abstinence do a lot of crying about themselves, do a lot of complaining. It's just the way it is, right? Um, I was not cheerful. I was not optimistic. I questioned everything. You gave me a direction and I asked you a million questions, not necessarily to find out clarification, but really because I didn't want to do it. Right. That was the truth for me. That's how I came in. And I lied. I lied all the time, mostly by omission. I just left things out that I didn't want you to know. Um, and so what I'm fortunate today, you know, to um Meet a person who might need my help. I remember those that did not make my demeanor, they didn't take it personally and they didn't get angry at me and they weren't annoyed by my resistance, but they just continued to show me the right way. And so when I'm lucky enough today to meet people like that, I'm to be tolerant and loving and not judge them by the same requirements and standards that one might judge a fully healthy person, right? Um, We cut them some slack and we show them through our own recovery. So if you meet people who are struggling with honesty, demonstrate your own honesty, be honest with them. Don't lie to them, tell them the truth. Number six, we have to be tolerant of unhealthy eating and drinking habits. Yep, not in ourselves but in others, right? Working with others, it says, page 102 to 103, many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided that they're not alcoholic, but some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue the question. We feel that each family in light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds that we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol who hates it. So I have tolerance of others eating behaviors. I'm not anti-sugar. That is not my, I don't have a platform. I know what I can't eat. I know what I don't eat and I know what I can eat and I know the way that I need to eat. And I know that there are professionals, there's nutritionists and doctors, can help people. And I'm happy to help when asked, but I'm not a food police, right? That's not my job to be anybody's food police. And when I'm with people, when I'm in the company of people who are eating, I don't turn up my nose in superiority. I never make a comment about the, the nutritional value of the food of other people that I'm sitting with. I never criticize and turn the label over. I have to bite my tongue with my family oftentimes because I love them and I want them to be healthy. Um, But I've learned that pointing out what they're eating and the core ingredients in it does the exact opposite that what I wanted it to do, does not make people stop eating it. In fact, you know, for me, I've been at events and holiday dinners where someone's plate is piled high and they'll say something to the fact, like they'll sit next to me and they'll say, oh my gosh, you're always so good. I'm being bad. I'm being bad right now. Like they want me to, to sort of like lay off. They're afraid that I'm going to say something. And I usually make an effort to say, you're not being bad. Like you're not murdering anybody right now. You just eat it. Enjoy. Like it looks delicious. Have Enjoy it. Because the truth is if I could have, I would have right? If I could have eaten that way at a holiday dinner, I would have, but I can't. So I don't, right? And I don't make people, especially by the way, if I'm sitting next to someone um, and they seem to have this disease, I'm going to be even more welcoming to them eating whatever they want. Why? Because if I'm not those people are not gonna stop eating those things. They're just gonna stop eating those things in front of me, which means they're gonna stay away from me. How can I help people who are avoiding me? If that's my job, if I believe that I'm in the company of an addict, I'm not gonna say anything negative about what they're eating. I'm not even gonna talk about my food. I'm gonna say nothing because I wanna be able to help people. So, you know, With my family, it's been a work in progress, right? Because with my family, I feel like it's my job to keep them healthy, right? Um, And it's actually not, it's not my job, believe it or not, they're grown. It's not my job to keep them healthy. At this point, you know, my my daughter's 22 years old. My son is 16. They know enough about healthy choices. I provide lots of healthy things in the house. Um, I don't forbid anything from being in this house. My rule of thumb for me, what works for me is um, if I go to the store, I'm buying healthy food because that's just what I buy, right? That's just what I buy. If they text me while I'm at the store and they ask for something specific, I am happy to buy it for them. I'll buy it for them, right? But I'm not gonna surprise them with something out of the blue, a treat. I'm just not going to, it's just not what I do. I'll surprise them with something else, right? Maybe, maybe uh, you know something different, but certainly not that. Um, but if I'm asked to buy it, I buy it, you know. Um, and my family though says that I have to stop making a face. There's a face I make when they eat something they shouldn't make, and I'm working on it. I'm asking God to keep my like my like self righteousness out of my facial expression. I'm a work in progress, but I'm getting better. I think Seven, tolerant of sponsees and possible sponsees, struggles, and questions. And again, working with others, page 94 says, make it clear that he's not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a friend. He might rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning, which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. And then page 95 says, if he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefer some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We've no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us but point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. So as we work with others, we can't be overly sensitive and upset by the difficulties they encounter in trying to work the program. I do not take it personally when people relapse. I don't I don't take it personally when people recover and then leave the program and drop off. Well. My heart is open and loving to those people. And I hope nothing more that they find their way back. Um, There's no judgment there. And I don't, and it's not, you know, I'm not God. I'm powerless over my disease, I'm powerless over theirs. And, you know, um, if and when they ever decide that they need OA, if I leave things friendly, warm and welcoming, then they'll feel safe to come back. That this is a safe space that they can come back. They can either come and talk to me anytime or anybody else in the program. And my job is to not damage people's opinions of OA and say, I could never go back there. I'm too humiliated to go back there. People are gonna judge me and be cruel to me if I go back there. Should never come from me. The disease will tell you that, but the sponsor should never tell you. That. That's the lie of the disease. It looks to block you from getting and that's just not true and then number eight love and tolerance as my code it's my guiding principle and in interaction on page 84 it says this thought brings us to step 10 which janet's going to get into next time which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and at the end of it it says we've now entered the world of the spirit and in the spirit we've got a function and our function in this world of the spirit is to grow in understanding effectiveness, right? And that in this new place that we're living, we resolutely, we turn our thoughts to someone we can help, and love and tolerance is always our code. You know, that's my favorite line, love and tolerance of others is my code, it's my code. It's my policy, it's my protocol. I would say it's my standard operating procedure, right? It's the SOP of my business, of this business. So my code is not right versus wrong. It's not fair versus unfair, it's love and tolerance. And you know, that's the code that I live if I wanna live in the fourth dimension. If I wanna live in the world of the spirit, there are different laws and different codes. Than the world of the physical. And in this world, I get to somehow have no desire for the foods that once owned me. I don't have a weight problem in this world. I have serenity, even calamity, I have a relationship with my creator, but I also have to follow a code. And that this is the code that I practice love and tolerance. And um, you know, if I circle back for a moment before I end and just touch on that idea that acceptance is the answer to all my problems and how acceptance was so difficult at the beginning, what has happened more and more is that I accept because I know that God is in control of the outcomes. And if God is in control of the outcomes, then I can accept lots of things, that it will all unfold exactly as he sees fit. My acceptance is reliant on my ability to tolerate and love. And I find that I'm not as happy, I'm not as happy when I get my way as I once thought, but I'm actually happier when I stop being attached to having a way. And with that, I will pass.